Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, Numbers 17 tonight. So we work our way through the book of Numbers. It starts with and. So this is a continuation from what we've been reading. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and get from them a rod from each father's house. All the leaders, according to their father's houses, 12 rods. Write each man's name on his rod and you shall write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi. For there shall be one rod for the head of each father's house. So the word and, if you remember, we just got done in 16, which was a 53 verse chapter, 50, 50 verse chapter on rebellion and the sons of Korah, which were one of the Levitic tribes, uh, rebelling and challenging the authority that God had set up in the nation of Israel. They wanted more say so. And the Lord took care of it and he uh, opened the earth and swallowed them up. And there was some burning that happened um, and God establishes his, his authority. And then immediately after that, the Lord's going to continue on. So what we saw in the last chapter is what God didn't want. He didn't want Korah in charge. In this chapter, we're going to see what God does want. So he's going to not just correct the, the negative, but he's going to move forward with the positive. And the positive is going to be Aaron's line. And I hope I'm not giving away too much. These rods that they're talking about are symbols of authority and rulership. Most shepherds would have a rod and a staff. And we see that in Psalm 23, right? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And the rod is what you use to get sheep to do something when they're being bad. You give them a little spank with a rod. A, a staff is something not only you can walk with and it's nice to have, but there would usually be a crook at the end of the staff where you could pull sheep close. So it's something where you could pull them to you uh, or stop them from going over a ledge or something to that effect. Um, but rods become a symbol of authority and rulership. They are generally well-worked wood because you handle them all day. So like a good walking stick, they would be all shiny, and but they're clearly a dead branch that you've worked and finished and made to be yours. Moses was extremely familiar with these because remember for 40 years he herded sheep. So it's interesting in Israel that they become this symbol of leadership. The Lord says to Moses, what's in your hand? And Moses says, a rod is in his hand. So even when the Lord first encounters Moses, that's what he's walking around with and it's what he holds. So that same rod is used to show sovereignty with Pharaoh back in Exodus 7 through 10. It's the rod that Moses uses to, to administer his authority. He uses it in battle back in Exodus 17. So it is definitely this symbol of authority and it's used for the sheep herding. Um, it's also a tool for discipline. And we see that in like Psalm 89 later on. I will visit their transgression with the rod and with their iniquity with the stripes. My dad used to call this a paddle. And if I was bad, he would, he would show me the rules with the paddle. So 
I only had the paddle used on me once, and we, that's not a story for tonight. It doesn't relate to the chapter, so I'm just going to move on. But the rod is something that can be used. It, it, it says in Proverbs that if you spare the rod, you spoil the child. So it is something where sometimes a kid, in order to get their head snapped around, they need to feel a little sting. My grandmother didn't use a rod. She was powerful enough to just use the ear. And she would pinch the ear when she did it, but it was enough to just wake me up when I was a precocious kid. I was like, whoa, what's going on? And I realized I had crossed a line with grandmother. So that's the rod. With the Kohathites, they're swallowed by the earth, and now we're talking about rods. It seems like when God uses his rod, it's a matter of judgment. It's life and death. But when people use their rod, it's more a matter of discipline, or it can be. So it's clear here that the rod is also, and this is kind of neat, if you do a word search on this, the rod is also a word that's used for Messiah. And we see the rod being a symbol and an image of Messiah. In Isaiah 11.1, Micah 6.9, if you want to kind of do that for Bible study this week, you can look that up. It's clear who God chooses as his rod because that will be a Messiah-type figure. And in this response to the Kohathites, they've rejected their tribal representation and they rejected Aaron's authority as the Levites. And then God kind of does this thing with the rods, regathers them together. He has them write their names on them. So it's really clear whose rod belongs to who. Uh, and if they write their own names on the rod, then there can be no shenanigans behind the scenes. When they get the rod back, they'll recognize that's the one that they carved. So they're not doing magic tricks or switching rods or anything like that. Uh, Moses has no issue with this. So this is what God asks. Moses just does it. Um, I think Moses is clear-minded as to how this thing's going to go out. But God wants to show the people of Israel who he's chosen too, because this is how he's going to deal with it. Verse 4, Then you place them in the tabernacle of meeting before the testimony. The testimony was the ark where I meet with you. And it shall be that the rod of the man whom I choose will blossom and thus will rid myself of the complaints of the children of Israel, which they make against you. So this won't rid the children of Israel of complaining, as we'll see. But God will be done listening to the complaining, which he has done so far. He's responded to these complaints. But with an authoritative answer, God's not going to actively respond to every complaint that comes up from the children of Israel. It's a turning point in Israel's history. The symbol of the authority then is going to be the dead stick that comes back to life. And we're going to see in the next three chapters this amazing image of Messiah. And it starts with the dead branch that blooms back to life. So the blossom is what's promised in verse 5. Keep that in mind. Verse 6, so Moses spoke to the children of Israel and each of their leaders gave them a rod apiece. For each leader, according to their father's house, 12 rods and a and rod of Aaron was among the rods. So there's one rod for each of the tribes of Israel. Each of the fathers of the houses, those men we saw at the beginning of Numbers, put their rod in the, in the, in the batch or in the, I guess you'd call it a bundle. And Moses placed the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses went into the tabernacle of witness and behold, the rod of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds, had produced blossoms and yielded ripe almonds. So we'll start by saying this is a miracle because branches don't bud, blossom and almond at the same time. That just doesn't happen with plants. So the claim here is that there's an active miracle that happens. It's undeniably what God does and what he's doing. But I'll start with the tabernacle of witness. 
which is an interesting phrase for the tabernacle that we see here. When we first did the tabernacle, I mentioned it gets a lot of different names. Here the name is witness, and the purpose for the change in the name here is because it's the purpose the tabernacle is serving for Israel is it's going to bear witness to who God wants in leadership. So they call it the tabernacle of witness. Literally, it's the house of truth-telling. Uh, to attest to what is seen is to witness something. I have seen something, and you tell the truth about it. So it's going to be a house where truth-telling happens. Um, I thought that was interesting, and, and I'll admit I was listening to a little Ken Graves this week. So in the Ken Graves tradition, God never calls us to a house of maybes. He doesn't call us to a house of perhaps. He doesn't call us to a house where I feel like this is what's going on. God calls us to a house of witness. It's not a house of relativity. It's a house of truth-telling. And sometimes truth-telling can be offensive to people, and sometimes it's a blessing to people because they need to hear the truth. So when God speaks, Moses and Aaron are going to bear witness to what they have seen and heard, and they're in no doubt about it. It is a house of witness. And to some degree, that's what we're called to also. We're called to be a witness of the good news, of what we've seen and heard in our life. It's why before Bible study, we ask what's going on in your lives for the week. Because it's our job to practice that, and it's easy to practice it with other believers. But we're supposed to be telling people about what God does in our life and how he's acted in our life and what he's done. And if we're not telling people, we're not bearing witness. So in Acts 1.3, it says, To whom he also, he being Jesus, showed himself alive after the passion or the resurrection by many infallible proofs, being seen by them for 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. God didn't ask his followers to say, maybe I saw God. He hung out with them for 40 days. There was no doubt in their mind that he is raised from the dead. And that's what this almond branch kind of is. There's no doubt with the people of God who God has chosen for his leadership. Um, also note that in a for a house of witness, for someone who's in sin, that acts like a courtroom. <laughs> but a house of witness for somebody who has repented, it acts like a refuge. And it's a place where you can be. To the saint, it's a house of meeting. And that name's going to change to the house of meeting in chapter 18. And I think that's a really interesting thing because the house of truth and witness becomes a house of meeting place for other people. If we come to the Lord in the spirit, in spirit and in truth, we're welcomed into that house. And that's a good place to be. I also think it's kind of neat. I had a lot of thoughts on this. God actually does more than he promises. Do you see in verse five, it said he promised the stick would blossom, but then he delivers more than what he promised. He, it, it blossoms it buds and it almonds in the in chapter eight, so three stages at once, and there's absolute con, con, confirmation of Aaron's ministry and what Aaron's doing. It's an absolute miracle, and the miracle is this: that Aaron's branch bore fruit. And a lot of times in the church, this is one of the ways you start to see who in the who needs to be raised up in the ministry and who God's raising up in the ministry. So pastoral teams will look around their congregation and they'll see Danny's Bible study with her sister or they'll see uh, a husband and wife that are actively living together in peace and in love and they'll see fruit in people's lives. And it's those places where you see fruit after somebody's been in the word and they've been blessed by the spirit that fruit just starts to happen. And then those are the people you start to actively move towards it. The branch, especially an almond branch, is the image of the lampstand. Uh, you go back to, I'll just read it from Exodus 25. We've already done this study. Three bowls should be made like almond blossoms on one branch. 
with an ornamental knob and flower and three bowls are made like almond blossoms on the other branch, an ornamental knob and flower, and so for the six branches that come out of the one lampstand. One lampstand, three branches on either side, that's what we today call a menorah, but the whole image of it was an almond branch. So when this is kind of significant that they've already made that lampstand and it's sitting in the tabernacle, and that's going to be the image God uses. So there's one stand, but there's lots of different branches of humanity. Perhaps the, you know, there's a representation with the, the number of things on there. You can go back and listen to the Exodus 25 teaching if you want to. For our purposes, we have the menorah sitting in the same room where God's using these branches as a symbol. And then Moses brings the rods out from before, from before the Lord to all the children of Israel. And they look and each man took his rod. So one at a time, each of these tribal fathers gets to pick their rod, see their name on it. Yeah, that's the name that I carved and realize they're not chosen for the priesthood, which is as important as Aaron seeing that he is chosen for the priesthood. And I think that's an interesting thing. If there's no fruit, then you're still welcome into the congregation, but it is something where God's not using you for that role at this point in time. And especially here, keeping it in context, um, Aaron's chosen for the ministry and the whole nation gets to see that they're not picked. So that's something good to remember if you don't want to have a Kohathite rebellion like the last chapter again, is have this clear miracle in front of them. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 10, bring Aaron's rod back before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels that you may put their complaints away from me lest they die. Thus did Moses and just as the Lord had commanded him, so he did. So we have one more thing that gets added to the Ark of the Covenant, Aaron's rod. And what's so special about Aaron's rod? What's so special is something that was dead was brought back to life. Resurrection is the symbol of who God has picked to be the intercessor for his, for his people. So it's a testimony of experience and a witness of events. We remember these things and we share these things and we do this in the body. It's enduring evidence of who God has ordained as his priest. So there's a living and a fruit-bearing branch that's there, and that line has continued, that line of Levitic, the, the Aaronic priesthood continues all the way to Jesus Christ. And then you say, but Jesus is not a Levite. He's of the tribe of Judah. And then the Hebrews explains all that, and we'll get into that in a second. So a resurrected branch, that's the main point. He accepts Aaron as the intercessor, and if you remember, Aaron ran around the tribe trying to save people, waving his incense and the plague backed off wherever Aaron went. So God saw that intersection, accepted it, and now acknowledges it before the people. In the same way, Jesus will travel around Israel, teaching the kingdom of God. Everywhere he goes, the enemy is pushed back. And then he's going to validate that ministry with resurrection, just like he does with Aaron. So you have this clear kind of image of Messiah that's there. A nice illustration, at least of people being saved from death and then reborn and bearing fruit. So God resurrects the one that intercedes for his people. So Aaron is a sign of something greater. And that sign gets talked about throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Zechariah 3.8, O hero Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, they are a wondrous sign. The priesthood is wondrous. But here's a sign too. For behold, I'm bringing forth my servant, the branch. Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Rod and staff. 
our savior, our branch is going to be both a ruler with the rod and going to be a priest with the branch. And those two things will come together in one symbol. And it's so easy to see this in retrospect. But you've got to give the Levites some credit for not seeing this when Jesus showed up. It took Jesus' resurrection to validate everything else he had done. Otherwise, he's just some mystic traveling around the Middle East. It's the resurrection and the resurrected branch that becomes the thing that validates his ministry. Isaiah 11.1, 1, There shall come forth, forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. God picks here, and he's going to pick a different tribe when the time comes. Here he picks Levites, but with Jesus, he's going to pick David's line or the line of Jesse. And it says it right there in the book, so no surprise. This is the kind of thing that Paul and Jesus there for 40 days, he would go through these verses and say, look, I am the branch. I'm the vine, and you are my branches, is actually what he teaches them. And he's using this imagery from this chapter to show that. An alive branch can continue to grow and make more branches. So I'll read that verse, John 15, 4. Abide in me and I in you, because as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me, thus our new sign on the wall. How do you know who the true priest is? You know because of the resurrected branch. And that's kind of what we get out of this. How do you know who your savior is? There's going to be fruit in the ministry and there will be almonds on that branch. It's kind of cool. Verse 12, we'll finish up the chapter. So the children of Israel spoke to Moses saying, Surely we die, we perish, we all perish. Whoever comes near the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Shall we all utterly die? And you just read that last verse and you're like, oh. They never stop, the children of Israel. And, it's, and you wonder what... What are they doing? So they overreact in the opposite direction. At first they want to be the priests and now they overact and say, well, everybody's going to die that comes near the tabernacle. So they get this miraculous sign. That miraculous sign is to not trifle with God and not fight over that ministry. And now they want to run away from it completely. Um, and I think that's growth. And I'm going to argue that this is growth. At least the Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, according to Proverbs. At least now they fear God properly. And that's truth, because you should be scared of an almighty God that created the universe and can uncreate you in a moment, right? So the fear of God's actually a step forward from the people of Israel versus rebelling and challenging Moses. Now they're just terrified. And that's not horrible. That's a good place to start. And, and it's a, good, a better place to be than to think that you can presume something over God. So, and another kind of walk away from that very last verse, even an obvious miracle danced out in front of everybody, in front of their faces, doesn't convert the heart. Miracles don't change the heart. They might change the mind like they do here. They go from being presumptuous to fearful. So the mind has been changed, but the heart has not turned towards God. And Jesus essentially runs into the exact same thing. But here the beginning of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools, fools despise that wisdom. The fear of God is actually a good thing. In fact, if you want a great word study for this week, do a word study on the fear of God and the fear of man and compare those two phrases throughout the entire Bible. I wanted to get through three chapters tonight, so I'm not going to do that. But it's a great Bible study. And that that fear is an active thing. Fear and love work together. 
Um, and it, it, you, when you love something, you fear losing it too. So that's the, the, the kind of the balance of that. The phrase, shall we all utterly die without an intercessor? This is truth. Yes, without Aaron, you will die. Without an intercessor to stand between you and God, the answer is yes, you will die. So they're actually kind of speaking truth here too. Without sacrifices and atonements from the priesthood, then yes, you as a people are going to die. That has been considered and God had put it on the table at one point. Like that's it. So when they're faced with their guilt and the truth of God, the first reaction they have is the sense of I'm going to die and I'm going to perish if I don't turn things around. And frankly, that hasn't changed today. It's exactly the same today. When people come face to face with the truth of the matter that they on their own cannot stand before God, the, 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 over, the sinking feeling in your gut is I'm in a lot of trouble here and I can't stand before God. So you need an intercessor. Luckily, they have Aaron at this time and we have Jesus. So in chapter 18, we get new details that define the priesthood. So God's going to give them a little more detail because they think they're all going to die. And they kind of explains what's going on with the priesthood. So if we do everything that God asks, chapter 15, you still have rebellion, chapter 16. But now we're going to get a little clarity around who's in charge, chapter 17. And then you get this accountability that's going to happen. Notice that God talks here directly to Aaron. Right after he's affirmed Aaron's authority, he talks to Aaron without Moses. And I think this is the first time. Clearly, the episode from 14, chapter 14, has elevated Aaron in God's eyes because Aaron repented. He got his own heart right with God, so now he can move forward. Then the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear the iniquity of the sanctuary. You and your sons with you shall bear the iniquity associated with your priesthood. Iniquity means guilt or responsibility uh, to do something right. Uh, It belongs to some people to carry the burdens of God's people. This is amazingly convicting when you're considering taking on a new line of work. Is that you look at this idea and God says, okay, if I've chosen some people and I've put fruit and I've confirmed that what they're doing is fruitful, sometimes I'm going to use those people to do work that I don't ask other people to do. And I, because that phrase just hit me this week you shall bear the iniquity of the sanctuary or related to the sanctuary. You're going to carry the guilt of God's people and you're going to deal with it. So that's quite a burden that he puts on Aaron. It's Aaron's job to read the words of God that are written down and know the instructions of God so well that nobody else perishes. So it's his job to read the word, to do it right, to be accounted for it, and it is rightly then called a burden that is put on his shoulders. Somebody has to watch over the children of Israel and have fidelity to God's law or there's just chaos and everybody's doing what they want to do. And he's telling Aaron in this first couple verses to just hold on to that idea, grab onto that idea, let it soak in, Aaron. This is your job and this is your duty. You're going to pick up this work and it's more work than what I'm asking from anybody else. In the grand plan of things, there are those that can be blessed And for blessings to happen in God's kingdom, there's those that have to carry that burden and that guilt. They have to pick up that weight and do it. So it's more work for those people. Verse 2, also bring with you your brethren from the tribe of Levi. I'm going to give you more people. 
the tribe of your father, that they may be joined with you and serve you while you and your sons with you are before the tabernacle of witness. They shall attend to your needs and all the needs of the tabernacle, but they shall not come near the articles of the sanctuary and the altar lest they die, they and you also. This is repeat from what God's told them before, but he's basically saying, Aaron, you're going to get helpers. You don't have to do this on your own. God's work is then done in groups, and even today God works through churches. He doesn't often work through individuals. Even when we see individuals like Billy Graham, God has put teams of people around those people to do things. So there's both the workers and the priest guards. So part of what they're doing is maintaining God's law, but they're also keeping people away from the altar that shouldn't be near it. So the priests are going to serve as guards. It's another role that they have. Their responsibility comes with these limits. And I thought that's a really different idea for the Israelite people too. In the nation of Israel, responsibility comes with borders. In the world, responsibility comes with ultimate power. So when the Pharaoh takes over, he has complete and utter power. When the priests take over, they have limits. And I think that's an extremely godly way of looking at things. It's completely different. Verse 4, they shall be joined with you and attend to the needs of the tabernacle of meeting for all the work of the tabernacle, but an outsider shall not come near you. And you shall attend to the duties of the sanctuary and the duties of the altar, and there may be no more wrath on the children of Israel. Well, that's good. Behold, I myself have taken your brethren, the Levites, from among the children of Israel, their gift to you given by the Lord to do the work of the tabernacle of meeting. God provides laborers. Verse 7, therefore you and your sons with you shall attend to your priesthood for everything at the altar behind the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood to you as a gift for service, but the outsider comes near shall be put to death. That felt a little redundant, didn't it? It is redundant because it's a chiastic form. And you know I like seeing these. When you see chiastic forms in the Bible, it's a portion of the Bible that God wanted them to memorize. And there's a main point in the middle. It's like a sandwich there's a thing at the top, and then it kind of works its way to a middle verse. And if you want to see the form, you can get your pencil out. Verse 1 and 7 both talk about gifts and responsibilities. You have a responsibility, but I'm going to give you a gift with it. Verses 2 and 6 both talk about the Levite's work. You're going to do some work. You've got gifts and responsibilities. You're going to do some work. Verses 3 and 5 both refer to their duties. These are things you don't get a choice over anymore. They're your duties. You have to do them. And then verse 4 is this core right in the middle of those verses. They are joined together as a team. They are set apart from the world and they're in an ordained role. These folks, these Levites, these Aaronic Levites, not just anyone. So God's direction is not a maybe, it's a clarity. God's direction is super clear and he puts it in place. Either the God, either the God of Yahweh, right, the God of the Israelites, our, is either our Lord or he's a cartoon character that doesn't matter. But if he's our Lord, we should know who he is with clarity. And God provides that clarity for Aaron in these verses. Anyone uh, shall be put to death if they go outside these lines. I don't want to be in that position ever. I don't want to make presumptions when it comes to God. I don't want to guess what God is thinking or what God's law is. And this is something we do a lot of in the United States. We read what we want to read and we make up a God that we want to follow. Here's what I think God does. and Here's what I think God does. But God's written who God is. And it's not an opinion kind of thing. It's not a debate kind of thing. You either read the Bible and see what's there or you're making up your own version of God, a cartoon character. Or there's a real God that's made real rules that we follow because he demands our souls and there's something to that. 
And that can be really exciting because it comes with gifts and blessings, right? So he goes on and he explains those things. I don't want to be anywhere near presumption because there's death that lies in presumption. Do you see the theme? If I presume things about Jesus Christ, that's a path to death. And I don't want to be there. I want somebody to stand between me and God that's going to mediate for me between me and God because that's the right place to be in, in, in with God. And our mediator is Jesus Christ. He is, according to well, the book of Hebrews explains all this. In fact, if you want to go to Hebrews 6 this week, it explains this whole thing in detail. This concept that Jesus is our high priest. Hebrews 6.20 says Jesus has already gone in there for us, the tabernacle. He has become our eternal high priest, not of the order of Aaron, but of the order of Melchizedek. God has picked Jesus to be the one that goes before God for us. That's not our job and it's not our place to do that. Luckily, because if we presume that that's our place, that's a, way, that's a path to death. Right? These are tough, thick concepts. This is not Genesis 1 kind of stuff. Right? This is the kind of stuff that believers have to wrestle with. It gets deep into the faith. This is as deep as it goes that there is a mediator and Jesus is it. Verse 8, And the Lord spoke to Aaron, Here I myself have also given you charge or responsibility of my heave offerings and all the holy gifts of the children of Israel. I have given them as a portion to you and your sons as an ordinance forever. This shall be yours. Of the most holy things reserved from the fire, every offering of theirs, every grain offering, every sin offering, every trespass offering, which they render me, shall be most holy to you and your sons. In a most holy place you shall eat it. Every male shall eat it. It shall be holy to you. This also is yours, the heave offering of their gift. With all the wave offerings of the children of Israel, I've given them to you and your sons and your daughters with you as an ordinance for every. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it. So part of the blessing of the ministry is God's going to provide everything for you. You don't have to worry about anything when you're in that role. So a summary of Levi, Leviticus 1 through 5 in these verses, right? Verses 8 through 11. And like Alyssa said before, it's really nice that we've already done those studies because I don't have to go through each of these types of offerings anymore. And if you want to go through them yourself, you can go back to those recordings and listen to Leviticus 1 through 5. In fact, as we keep reading, this is pretty much a summary of the book of Leviticus. So I'm going to go through it fairly quickly. God, God writes and sees these are the ways he's going to treat the workers in his ministry. He's going to bless them. But also notice, and I'll pull this out, because before when we read through this, it was from the perspective of Israel. And now when we read through it, he's talking directly to Aaron and the priests that these pieces of those offerings that are for the priesthood, and he's saying these are for you, but he's essentially repeating what he said before. It never changes. It's an ordinance forever, verse 8, which means workers in the ministry will be provided for. They might not be provided for in the Aaronic priesthood, but we have workers in the ministry today who God provides for, and he provides for them through the tithe process, which is what this is. Paul writes the same thing. There's different jobs, but it's the same mission and the same gods. 1 Corinthians 12.4. Now there are diversity of gifts, but the same spirit. There's differences of administrations, but the same Lord. Diversities in operations, but it's the same God that works in all of us. The manifestation of the spirit is given to every man to profit with. Part of what we get in our provision is we get the manifestation of the spirit of God. We get the Holy Spirit. And that's one of the blessings we get that Paul adds to this list. Verse 12, all the best to the oil, all the best to the new wine, 
and the grain, their first fruits, which they offered to the Lord, I have given them to you. Whatever ripe, whatever first ripe fruit is in their land, which they bring to the Lord shall be yours. Everyone who's clean in your house may eat it. Now, when he says they're yours, it's God's giving them those things because when people bring them to the tabernacle, if you remember, people brought them as a gift or a sacrifice to God. So when they come to the tabernacle, the people give them to God. But on these verses, God is giving them to the Levite priesthood. Why? Because God doesn't need stuff. And God's just going to use it for his servants and use it for his ministry. It, but on the other hand, God owns all of it. Like it's all God's blessing and it's all God's addition into their life. Whatever ripe first fruits in their land, which they bring to the Lord, shall be yours. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it. Every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Everything that first opens the womb of all the flesh, this is in addition to the tithe, which they bring to the Lord, whether man or beast shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall surely redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. So you're not going to do human sacrifices. So essentially, he's summarizing Leviticus. Uh, you can go back and read those. All the best is one of the phrases we see here, which is great. God gives his people the best. If you've dedicated your life to the Lord, he gives you the best of things. That doesn't mean you're all going to get hot tubs. It does mean God will bless you with the Holy Spirit. He will provide for you. He will make sure you do not starve. And in some case, it means he'll even get you a job. And that's what God does. Verse 13 points out that this isn't just for those people doing the work. It's for their whole family. God, again, deals with families instead of individuals. And I think that's super cool, being a family guy myself. God does work in those kinds of units. Verse 15 there's a redemption law here that gets repeated. I just want to point that out again. They are commanded, you shall surely redeem the firstborn sons. So part of the job of the priests is to pay money for those firstborn sons so that they can stay home with their families. So if you're of the tribe of Naphtali, you don't have to worry about losing your firstborn son. That's the kind of stuff Pharaoh did. It's not the kind of stuff that's going to be in God's kingdom. So it's a symbolic giving, but the, they are redeemed with money. The redemption law stays in place, and it's an extremely important place because every single family that has kids is grateful for the fact that the priests redeemed or paid for their firstborn son. And this is something that you got to imagine is just part of the culture of the Jewish tradition, that redemption is something every family knows and every family is intimately grateful for, right? Otherwise, Grant wouldn't be with us tonight. He'd be off serving at the tabernacle. But the fact that they're redeemed is something they all understand. And that redemption idea stays in place with the Jewish people right up to Jesus Christ. So there was no doubt about what Jesus was doing when he paid the price for our sins. He was redeeming us. 1 John 4, 9, This is the love of God, and it was manifested towards us that God had sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. He redeemed us. Verse 16, and those redeemed of the devoted things you shall redeem when one month old, according to your valuation, for five shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 garaz. <laughs> um, I would add to this a piece that was in Exodus that isn't in these verses. In an Exodus 34, they could also use a lamb to substitute for this redemption. So it was acceptable for a lamb of God to be replacing this particular redemption. John 1, the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. He's directly referring to this redemption process and how it works. Verse 17, 
but the firstborn of a cow, the firstborn of a sheep, the firstborn of a goat, you shall not redeem. They are holy. You shall sprinkle their blood on the altar and burn their fat as an offering made by fire, as a sweet aroma to the Lord. We do do animal sacrifices. We don't do human sacrifices. And their flesh shall be yours, just as the, the wave breast of the right thigh are yours, which were considered the best of the meat on the animal. All the heave offerings of the holy things which are the children of Israel offer the Lord, I have given to you and your sons and your daughters with you as an ordinance forever. It is a covenant of salt before the Lord with you and your descendants forever. Again, all of this is a lot of repeat from Leviticus. I'll just remind you that heave offerings, Exodus 29, Leviticus 7, were things that you would take, you would give them to God, you'd heave them up to before God, and God would say, go ahead and give those to the Levites, and you'd bring them back and you'd use them. Most heave offerings were offered to God, and then God would offer it back to the people. In a peace offering, they would heave it, and then they would have a feast with it. So a lot like we pray before our meals, we say, Lord, this is all your food, bless it to our bodies, and then we eat it. So this is kind of a heave offering you could read like that. Heave offerings were also for Nazarite vows when people dedicate their life to the Lord and they don't have to. Number six, they were also used in giving thanksgiving before they ate. Number 15. The part that's interesting in these verses is this phrase, a covenant of salt. We haven't seen that really before. Um, we do know that salt's incorruptible. It's pure. It's eternal. It's a raw chemical or a material or a combination of two uh, pieces. I'm sorry, let me say that differently. It is something you can find in the natural world in its purest form, N-A-C-L, right? So you can find it. Uh, it is the stone of the sea in the Greek. It's referred to as an abundant resource, yet it's really, really precious. So it's kind of defies understanding. Usually when you have abundance, things get cheaper. But with salt, it's abundant, but it's still extremely expensive. It even is today. The Egyptians would trade salt at the same weight as gold because it takes a lot of work to pull it out from the sea. Uh, it was considered uh, something that had to do with, spiritually speaking, with eternity because when you sprinkle salt on something, it makes it last longer, especially meat, right? And it still has that property today. Leviticus 2.13 used it to season the fellowship offering because fellowship would be kept from corruption and it was to be eternal. So it was symbolic for those things. Second Chronicles 13.5, we can see this a covenant of salt referred to again. So you can see how it's not used often in the Bible. It's extremely rare. Should you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the dominion of, of over Israel to David forever to him and his sons by a covenant of salt? So the only, one of the only other times you see this phrase, we see it here with the covenant of salt for the priesthood, and then we see it in Chronicles referred to for the kingship. So there will be a covenant of salt for the priesthood and one for the kingship. Whoever the Messiah is will be sustaining that covenant of salt for the kingship and for the priesthood forever. So again, you see these things that apply to Aaron, but they're also fitting in a very messianic way too. There's so much stuff here. One of the cool things, if you look up salt and where it's at, is salt is often used as a sign of friendship. In fact, it was referred to by Jews in Jesus' day that if you'd eaten someone's salt, you were their friend. Because if you go over to their house and they offer you salt with the meal, they're offering something that's precious and valuable to them, something that costs them something. So if you eat of another person's salt, you're their friend forever. It's a lifetime buddyship. So 
None of you had our salt tonight, but you could if you wanted to. It's right there on the counter if you eat our salt. Salt's a little more uh, available today. Everyone will be seasoned with fire. Every sacrifice we give to the Lord will be seasoned with salt, Mark 9, 49. There are some things in life that are eternal, and there's some things in life that are not. And when we see that phrase, seasoned with salt or a covenant of salt, these are eternal things. They don't change. They're pure. They have to do with fellowship. They are abundant but precious at the same time. They're valuable in cleansing. For those of you that are walking with the Lord, your friendships, your relationships are the ones that should last forever. They should be pure. They should be abundant. You should have lots of them if you can, but they, they should also be considered precious at the same time. They're extremely valuable and friendships in the kingdom are cleansing and they help you be pure. It's a covenant of salt forever. Then the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in the land. Dang it, nothing in this world is what they're going to get. Nor shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. Priest, this world has nothing for you. I got nothing for you in this world. You don't get land, you don't get awesome stuff, and really you probably won't get hot tubs. The land is not your portion and nothing in this world is your portion. The Lord is the portion of mine, my inheritance, my cup. Thou manifest my lot, Psalm 16. The royal priesthood of the saints, 1 Peter 2, you have God as your portion as a believer in Jesus Christ. That's what you get as your inheritance. So if you want lots and lots of land, this is not an article that says you can't buy land because you're not in the Aaronic priesthood. But you should know that your primary inheritance in this world is not this world. You're not of this world. You're of Christ and of the kingdom of God. Your inheritance is the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, and God the Father. Verse 21. Behold, I've given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance in return for which they work in return for the work which they perform, the work of the tabernacle and meeting. So you get all this good stuff, but you got to get to work. And that's your job. So don't be lazy. Hereafter, the children of Israel shall not come near the tabernacle of meeting, lest they bear their sin and die. But the Levites shall perform the work of the tabernacle of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. Notice the tabernacle name has changed to meeting now. And they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that among the children of Israel they shall have no inheritance. For the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer up, a heave offering to the Lord, I've given to the Levites as an inheritance. Therefore I have said to them, among the children of Israel they shall have no inheritance. It's interesting how by Jesus' time, the Pharisees and Sadducees have worked around this and they're the most wealthy people in their society. Because they've come up with schemes and ways to dance around this idea that a pastor should not be lazy when they're, when they're taking care of the flock. They should not be idle in doing that, and God will provide for them, but they also shouldn't lord over them, right? They shouldn't be elevating themselves higher than their congregation. They should generally live alongside their congregation. I think sometimes servants have trouble taking God's tithe. First, they're dealing with presumption in chapter 16, and here God's basically saying, I want you to take the tithe of your people because that's how I'm going to provide for you. And that's really difficult. And a lot of pastors I've talked to, that's one of the hardest things when you first start in the ministry is accepting the idea that other people are going to give money to the church and that's going to be how you pay for things in your house. It adds a huge level of responsibility, right? Because pastors have to think, I'm spending God's money here. And they come into that understanding, it's kind of all God's money. 
lot of pastors, at least that we know in the Calvary movement, they're tent makers. When Pastor Mike started, he was working at Best Buy, right? Because taking God's money means taking on that responsibility too. That's a really dangerous point to be because there's a burden and a responsibility and accountability that comes with that. So I'll work at Best Buy as long as I can is probably what he was thinking, right? And we know a lot of pastors like that. You get no land, but you get offering. Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all your needs according to the riches of the glory in Jesus Christ. So these are spiritual blessings that happen. What he's doing with this is God is naming his shepherds. He's also naming his heirs and who is heir to the throne, if that makes sense. If you're an heir, you get things. Roman 8.16 the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Christ, that we may also be glorified together. The gifts are spiritual, not of this world. Verse 25. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak thus to the Levites and say to them, When you take from the children of Israel the tithes which I have given you from them as your inheritance, then you shall offer up a heave offering of it to the Lord a tenth of the tithe. So now Moses and the Levites hear the same idea from both. There's two witnesses. They hear it from Aaron and here they hear it from Moses. Um, also, this is nice that God speaks to Moses on this because it's not just Aaron announcing that he's heard from the Lord that he gets all the money, right? It's Moses that comes along as a second witness and says, Aaron gets all the money and that's how this is going to work. Tenth of a tithe is actually the Hebrew word ma'aser twice. Ma'aser, ma'aser. It means a tithe of the tithe or a tenth of the tenth. Um, so when people give their tenth to the church, the priests take a tenth of that and they give it to God too. So even the Levites are supposed to tithe. This answers one of my age-old questions. Do pastors tithe? And the answer is, yeah, they should be. And they should be giving a tenth of what they get because it's not that God needs the money or that the church needs the money. God isn't broke. It's that we as people need to recognize that we give the first of our fruits back to God. And your heave offering shall be reckoned to you as though it were the grain offering of the threshing floor and as the fullness of the wine pressed. You give everything as an investment. And I love the word reckoning here in verse 27. Reckoning is to check your accounts. Uh, we think that when we give, it's private, 1 Corinthians 16. But it's not a secret to God. What we give in the church, what we tithe, is actually reckoned by God. Can you take care of the leash noise? Yeah. Tithing as an idea is not new in these verses. It was, it, it was before this we saw people giving tenths and tithes. We saw Abraham do it. Uh, we see it in Hebrews 7 and in 1 Corinthians 9. Tithing is not just an Old Testament concept. It's a New Testament concept too. We just wanted to make that point. Also, and I should point this out, tithing is not a have to, it's a get to. Um, and if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous man, mammon, who will commit your trust to true riches? God looks at how we tithe as an indicator of what he's going to give us responsibility for. This is a huge thing. When I would talk to students at Bethel and they say, God's not active in my life, I would say things like, are you in the word? <laughs> Do you hang out with other believers and go to church? And are you tithing? And those things are the things that in the Bible God looks at to see if he's going to bless and use people. And we see that principle come up again and again and again. So he asks people to do this and to do it, and he reckons it in verse, 20 second, uh, verse 27. Kashav is the word. To calculate, to invest, to make judgment, 
to count something. God keeps records. That's scary. I've spent years of my life where I didn't tithe like I should have. And I'll have to answer for those years. Um, and other years, you do tithe and you feel like, keep all the books you want because I'm on the up and up. And you keep that, that, that account with God reckoned. Matthew 6.20, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor dust shall corrupt them, where thieves do not break through or steal. That means that in this life, I can lay up treasures for myself in heaven and tie this part of the way that I do that. And a lot of pastors abuse that and then tell their congregations to give more and more and more and more. We see that a lot in third world countries where we see pastors getting filthy rich and making their congregations poor and they use verses like that to do it. That is not what these verses talk about. This is a tenth of a tenth. This is a set and orderly amount that everybody knows what they're supposed to give. If you're broke and you're making nothing and you're in debt, you should probably give nothing because you're in debt, right? And that's something where if you're giving a tenth, it's a tenth of your increase. And if you're in, in, in debt, God wants you to get out of debt before he wants you to start giving money to a church. Don't listen to pastors that pass the plate four or five times in a service. That's evil and it's wrong and ask you to give till it hurts and even a little bit past. And I don't know if you've seen these pastors. Um, I have. It's twisted. And you get there and you get this sick feeling in your gut like these people are asking, God's not broke and he doesn't need your money. But we give because it's something we do out of the fullness of our heart. And your heave offering shall be reckoned to you as though it were the grain of the threshing floor and the fullness of his wine press. Verse 28. Then you shall offer a heave offering to the Lord from all your tithes, which you receive from the children of Israel. And you should give the Lord's heave offering from it to Aaron the priest. All of your gifts you shall offer up every heave offering to the Lord from all the best of them, the consecrated part of them. Therefore you shall say to them, when you have lifted up the best of it, then, the, then it shall be accounted. Again, we see a word about accounting to the Levites as the produce of the threshing floor and as the produce of the wine press. You may eat in any place, you and your households, for it is your reward for the work of the tabernacle of meeting. So you can eat it. There's no, God's setting it up. Because remember, they're all running away in fear. We're all going to die. And he's saying, look, you're not going to die. This, these are the boundaries. If you stick within the boundaries, you are all safe. You don't, have to under, you don't have to worry about what's going on there. You shall bear no sin because of it. And when you have lifted up the best of it, but you shall not profane the holy gifts of the children of Israel, lest you die. Don't mock these things. Keep it sacred. Keep it holy. Understand what you're doing it. And God, and, and God will understand that. And that's probably a reference to Nadab and Abihu making the profane fire before the Lord. Do, 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 do. Now the Lord spoke to Moses. Numbers 19. That's right. Three chapters. This one's a really short one too, kind of. Now the Lord spoke to Mo Moses and Aaron saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring you a red heifer without blemish. It's interesting. God sets up this whole tithe thing, explains the work of the priesthood, explains the, the blessing of Aaron, and then he says, oh, and I want a red cow. And I love how God does this. It's like with the tassels. There's all these big, serious topics. And then the Lord says, oh, 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 one more thing. A red cow needs to come. So speak to the children of Israel that they bring you a red heifer without blemish in which there is no defect on which the yoke has never come. Two million people bring me one cow. Why would God do this if he's not trying to set a symbol for us to read and understand really deeply? We have a resurrected branch. The sign of the priesthood is the thing that's resurrected from dead to life. 
We have a ministry that's abundant and flourishing and God's ministers are going to do the work of the kingdom and they're going to get help to do it because they're going to do it together and they're going to do it with their families. And then in verse 19, a red cow is involved. The question here is not the manner of the red cow or the ordinance of the law. These are statutes or this is a rule that God's going to make. One wonders how this is going to be fulfilled. So it's not about the red cow. It's about what is this a symbol of? What are we supposed to see in the red cow? So let's read it carefully. Um, because God did, or Jesus didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them. So when we see these weird little hang, hanger honors like tassels, you think, how does Jesus fulfill this? So a heifer, has, some people know cows better than I do. If I'm wrong, correct me. A heifer has never given birth and has never worked or been yoked or put into a work mode. So it's a fully grown cow that has never bore fruit in their life. It's just at the beginning of their ministry or service to the, their owners. So that's a red cow. Red is extremely rare in the Middle East. So this would be a super rare cow in that sense. But the red that we're talking about would be a blood-like image or a bloody cow. Very rare, very valuable, very proud. And part of what makes them so valuable is that they have a whole lifetime of service ahead of them, either in giving milk or in doing work. So you shall give it to Eleazar, which that name means God has helped for what it's worth. The priest, that he may take it outside the camp and it shall be slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of the blood, some of its blood seven times directly on the front of the tabernacle of meeting. Numbers are important in this chapter, and we are in the book of Numbers. So seven, remember, is the number of completeness. The blood of this cow goes on the, the priest of Aaron. In other words, the priesthood will take the blood of this heifer upon themselves, and they will kill this cow, and they're going to do it outside of the camp or later outside of the city. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its hide, its flesh, its blood, and its offer, offal shall be burned. So... You're not going to keep any part of this cow. The entirety of this cow will be killed. Right, Shadow? Right. I'm going to get to the Jesus imagery now because there's so much of it. I don't want to try to come back to it later. Jesus, we should know, was taken outside of the city to be killed. We should know that unlike anybody else, Jesus was extremely rare because most of his peers in his generation were killed by Herod. Remember his family got him out of there? So he was an extremely rare person as a 30-year-old-ish, um, as was John the Baptist. Um, he was killed completely. He was not partially killed because then there wouldn't be a resurrection. We know he was killed because the blood and the water flowed and his blood was sprinkled all over the city. And the responsibility of his death really lies not on the Roman uh, Caesar, because, or the Roman uh, Caesar Augustus, because he, not Caesar, Julius. Pontius, Pilate. My goodness, I'm forgetting my Christmas stories. It wasn't on Pilate's hands because remember, Pilate washed his hands and said, the responsibility of this for is not on me. And how did he know he was fulfilling prophecy? The responsibility of Jesus' death went solely on the priesthood, right? And it's part of that transition. And then look at verse 6. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast them into the midst of the fire, uh, burning the heifer. So three symbolic images get thrown into. And I'm sure Aaron and Moses are going, why are we doing all this? 
What does it mean and how will it be fulfilled? And I also think that when Jesus is teaching and Peter's teaching and Paul's teaching and they're showing this to people in the word of God, they're saying this is what was going on with the red heifer, right? Some people even believe Jesus was crucified on a cedar wood cross. The hyssop was offered to him by the Roman soldiers. And the, the scarlet or the, the scarlet thread is in the door of the sanctuary. Um, it's in the priest's robes. It's woven into their robes already. And the soldiers put a red scarlet robe on Jesus when they mocked him at the time of his crucifixion, Matthew 27. So we have these images, cedar being resistant to rot, hyssop being used for cleaning, and it's offered to Jesus. The only other spot where we see hyssop being used is with the lepers. So hip, hyssop is something that cleans this leprosy of sin in our lives. It purifies. And they're all going to get killed together. They're all going to be mixed together in this image of something when God heals the unhealable in the future. Then the priest shall wash his clothes. He shall bathe in water, and afterwards he shall come into the camp, and the priest shall be unclean until evening. And the one who burns it shall wash his clothes in water and bathe in water and shall be unclean till evening. Interesting image of what Jesus, this is one way to look at what Jesus was doing with his disciples. After that, he poured water into the basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. The disciples get washed. Peter even protests it, right? And, and Jesus, you know, kind of chastises him because this is something that needs to happen. It's an odd image, and a lot of times today, Christians will take this washing of feet thing as an image of just service and putting myself under you. That's a sloppy way to think about what Jesus was doing. In fact, I always get a little like, I wonder when we see people washing each other's feet, do you think you're Jesus? Is that why you're washing feet? You're really going to put yourself in that role? And it's a beautiful image in one way, but in another way, if you look at it through this lens, you're going, wow, Jesus was doing that because he was the Messiah and that washing had to happen for his disciples. In other words, he was ordaining a generation of priests that are washing themselves. And Jesus does the washing through the water. Another way to look at washing is through baptism. Then a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and store them outside the camp in a clean place. They shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for the water of purification. It is for the purifying from sin. So even in the Old Testament, we get to see like what this is for. So this is a stunning image. The ashes are all going to be added to the water and the red sacri the red heifer sacrifice of purification is going to be added to the water to purify from sin. A lot like today, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ mixed with the Holy Spirit and the living water of baptism are mixed together to purify his people for the ministry. This is a crazy image that we see all the way back here in Numbers. Hebrews 9.14 makes that connection. Don't listen to me. Keep reading the Bible. It says it right there. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciousness from sins so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. He's so much better than a cow. Cow's a nice symbol. Jesus is the real deal. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes. And he will be unclean till evening, and it shall be a statute forever to the children of Israel and to the stranger who dwells among them. So this is a statute not just for the Aaronic priests. This is a statute for us too. So that we should be thinking about the red cow of sacrifice for our sins and where that was fulfilled. 
He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. Given that we are all dead in our sins, according to the New Testament, we are all not only touching dead people, we are dead people. And we start as dead people and we must be born again into a new life in Christ. Do you see the language and how it relates to this? Right? So if you touch anyone, a dead body of anyone, you are unclean. Romans 3.12, all have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We're all in that boat. Verse 12. What do you do if you're in that boat? Verse 12, shall purify himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, he will be clean. But if it does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Those who don't wash in the water during this window of opportunity between three and seven are going to be cast away. They are missing an opportunity to be cleaned. This should give us some urgency, right? The third day we understand, at least as New Testament readers, we understand Jesus was killed on the third day. He was whipped, so he was made completely red. He was in his prime. He had just started his ministry, right? He'd only been really act, active in the ministry for three years. He had a long life ahead of him, so he was killed early on. The potential would have been great. And in Luke 18, 13, it says they scourged him and they killed him. And on the third day, he rose again. In fact, all four Gospels make clear reference to the third day being an important day. He was rose on the third day, and that's when that happened. And part of why that's important is this chapter we're reading right now. It's a big deal that this purification stuff happens on the third day. So we have, we have Jesus' resurrection on the third day, which leaves the question, what are we talking about with the seventh day? And why is the seventh day, and where is that? Uh, we know that the seventh day is the day of completion. It's when God completed the world. It's when Passover is complete. It's the seventh day that we rest on. It's God's rest. And in Hebrews 4, again, don't trust me, they just say it. Uh, For we who have believed do not enter into rest, as he said, so I swore my wrath. They shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Whoever comes into God's rest is someone who is done with their life. On the seventh day, your life is complete. So you have a window from when Jesus is resurrected, from when you hear the word of God to the day you die. And that's not a set time of days. It's a season um, that you can accept Jesus Christ. Whoever touches the body, verse 13, back in our chapter, whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle. Lord, that person shall be cut off from Israel. He shall be unclean because the water of purification is not sprinkled on him and his uncleanness is still on him. Peter says to Jesus, you shall not wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. If I don't do this cleansing work, you're not in my kingdom. This is a tough message today. We like the gospel of love where everybody goes to heaven, but it's not a biblical message. And here we see in Numbers that there is a separation for people that choose to be unclean. And notice this, it's not, and I like, for me, this works for me, it helps. God's not sending people to hell. They're already in hell. And God saves people from that. They're already unclean because they've touched, they've touched death. They're the curse of Adam and Eve is upon them. It's in the beginning it's there and it's the same here. It's been that way since the beginning, the foundation of the world. 
It's those that want to be purified and saved and they have to do something. You have to do nothing to be unsaved. But you do have to go and be sprinkled with this water, this Holy Spirit, to be baptized into the kingdom. And this is the law, verse 14. That's how it works. This is the law when a man dies in his tent. All who have come into the tent and all who are in the tent shall be unclean for seven days. And open every vessel which is not no cover fastened on it. It is unclean. Whoever is in the open field touches one who is slain by a sword who has, who has died. Or the bone of a man or a grave shall be unclean seven days. Pretty much we have some public health measures. Don't play with dead people. There's nothing inherently dirty about dead people. But there's a spiritual thing that gets touched here. So if you touch a fresh dead body, that doesn't mean that you're natu- like somehow actually unclean. But, if, but in this case, there's a spiritual uncleanness that happens as soon as that happens. And we see that with the vessels in verse 17. Even if you have a vessel that's open, or I'm sorry, not verse 17, it was verse 15. Thanks, Zach. Um, even if there's like an open mustard jar in your house and somebody dies in your house, you throw the mustard jar away. Like that's unclean. So there's something unclean about death. Death is the evidence of sin. And we saw that back in Genesis 2. Death is the consequence of sin. So the spiritual aspect of anything that's dead is that it's a consequence of the sin that's in the world. So the work of Jesus or the red kuffer how and the work of the Holy Spirit or the water that's used for cleansing, these two things come together. For an unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes from the heifer burnt for purification and the running water shall be put on them in a vessel and a clean person shall take the hyssop and dip it in the water Sprinkle it on the tent and on all the vessels and on the persons who are there or on the one who touched a bone, the slain, the dead, or grave. Here's the good news. You can hear about the purification from somebody who's clean. So that puts this burden on the priesthood. They're the ones that are first cleansed in the temple and it's their job to take care of all the people in the country, as many as they can. The clean person shall sprinkle the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day he shall purify himself, wash his clothes, bathe in water, and at evening he shall be clean. There will be an end to his ministry. There will be a time where even the priests come into a point of rest. Verse 12, this is kind of a repeat. Here the clean splashing of purified water goes on everything, and the unclean can accept it or they can choose not to accept it. You don't have to have a priest come do this in your house. For the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer Sprinkling the unclean sanctifies it for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit of himself offered himself without spot to God, clean your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? Hebrews 9, 13 to 14. In fact, the book of Hebrews is pretty much commentary on the book of Numbers. I think we're starting to see that, right? So in Hebrews 9, verse 13, they even reference this heifer, right? So how much more is Jesus than a stupid cow? Right? The cow is a great image, a great illustration. It shows the truth of it all. But how much better is Jesus who is resurrected and eternal? And we'll finish up. But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself, that person shall be cut off from among the assembly because he's defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of purification has not been sprinkled on him. And he is unclean. Ladies, you're not exempt. He here is the overall human reference to he. It is not just that just so you know that. 
It shall be a perpetual statute for them. He who sprinkles the water of purification shall wash his clothes. He who touches the water of purification shall be unclean till evening. And whatever unclean, whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean. And the person who touches it shall be unclean till evening. There's a legitimate outcome here for those who refuse to be purified. They will be cut off from the assembly. No one gets to purify themselves. You need a priest to do the purifying. Luckily, we have a priest. Those who do some sprinkling have to be clean themselves or it doesn't work. You have to have someone who's sinless to purify you to be sinless. Right? And these are the rules set up in numbers. It's not Jesus and his disciples making this stuff up. It's written in book as law hundreds of years before they even were born. All of this looks like Jesus and it had to be cool to read through this. If you're a kid learning about the red heifer stuff, or you're going to the actual ceremony and you're asking your parents, why are they killing the red cow? And the parents kind of explain it. Well, it's because they're going to take all those ashes and they're going to mix them in the water. And that's going to be their sprinkling water for the rest of the year. And it symbolizes something, but we don't really know what. And they do it for 1,500 years, right? The Jewish people just carry out this tradition year after year after year. And then Jesus comes along and says, I am that sacrifice. Only I'm sinless and I'm eternal because I got this branch with almond blossoms coming off it. There's a church that's exploding all through the, the Europe and the rest of the world that just grows all over the place. And then people feel the fruit in their own lives and they become branches off that branch. And that's the evidence of God's Holy Spirit. And it is the cleansing of that Holy Spirit and the sacrifice of Jesus that makes us pure and brings us to heaven. And they're like, whoa, everything makes sense now. And I don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this stuff out. I can just kind of go along with it. So in summary, God gives evidence of fruit to those that he calls into his kingdom. Chapter 17, he calls Jesus and Jesus calls us all to. In fact, we're all called to teach the good news everywhere we can. God then expects Aaron and the priests to take on the iniquity and do the work. Chapter 18, Jesus also takes on our iniquity, our sins, and does the work that we don't have to do. We are saved by grace, not by works, right? God offers provision and help with the people of the ministry in chapter 18. Jesus also offers provision and help that we will, we will always be given what we need in the situations we need it, spiritually speaking, not materially speaking. Then God, God offers this unique sacrifice of purification in chapter 19, which is an image of Christ, who's risen on the third day, and he'll return at the end and completion of things on the seventh day. By the way, seventh day is another, the word seven is a great Bible study too. I'm giving you lots of Bible studies this week, so you can just be in it every day. But going through the Bible and looking how seven gets used throughout the Bible is kind of interesting. It's worth your time. The priest with the combination of the sacrifice of the, of the sacrifice and the water, share it with anyone who wants it. There's no restrictions on who gets purified. And it even makes a comment saying, even the Gentiles can be part of this, which lets us in the door. Thank you for that. Then there's a rest. There's a season of rest that happens. After all this work for God, God brings a beautiful rest and he brings it down. I'm going to finish with the seventh day being mentioned in Hebrews and Hebrews 4. And I'm just going to end on this quote in Hebrews 4, verse 7. Today, after such a long time, it has been said, today you will hear his voice. But don't harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of any other day. There remains, therefore, for a rest for God's people. For he who has entered his rest has, entered, has himself also ceased from the works 
as God has from his. There will be a day when we get to rest and we don't have to fight anymore. And we can be in God's kingdom and in his presence and we can come into his rest. Hallelujah. And until then, we have to work our tails off because the time is short and the days are not long um, and we have a job to do and we have a ministry to do. And this is something that you hear after multiple chapters of complaining. And when we get past that complaining in our maturity, then we start looking at what the work is God has for us. And that's the blessing of it. It's actually really fun. Um, it sounds kind of depressing that we have a lifetime filled with work, but the work is joyful and it's fruitful and it's a blessing and it's amazing. And it's getting hot in here, so let's pray and we'll be done. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for our um, family and our friends, Lord. We thank you for the word of God that you provided these amazing illustrations right in the Bible for us to see and read. And we can study them with fresh eyes, just like the disciples did when they, they learned under Jesus and when the new believers did, when they learned under the disciples, Lord, that we can read these things and go, oh my goodness, Jesus is all over this. And the, the laws and the rules that you set in place were not just for the Old Testament. They're forever and in perpetuity. They're for all generations. And they're not just for the Israelites. They're for the Gentiles too. That these rules of sacrifice and redemption apply to us too. Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice, for being a pure and precious uh, and, and, and spotless sacrifice for our sins, Lord, that we can wash them away and we can choose to be washed. Uh, and Lord, that you throw our sins as far as the east is from the west. What an amazing message. Lord, we accept that sacrifice. We move towards it, Lord, and we look for what work you have us do. Um, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.